BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Now it's time to talk about angry, working-class white people. We've heard a lot about them lately, and now we can read a lot about them. For that, we turn to Stephen Hahn. He teaches history at New York University. He's the author of many award-winning books, most recently A Nation Without Borders. Steve Hahn, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, we are told that angry working class uh, white people, especially men, made the difference in getting Trump the electoral votes he needed in the key states of Michigan, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin to become president. And there are a bunch of new books about angry working class white people, which are said to explain what's happened to America. You've read a bunch of them. The top of the mm-hmm. list, the most popular, the best known, is Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance. It's been on the bestseller list for 62 weeks. That's a I year know. and 10 weeks. Who is J.D. Vance and what is this book? Well, J.D. Vance, as best as I can tell, and that's mostly from the book, um, grew up in um, a declining steel town in uh, Ohio, but his family roots are in eastern Kentucky. Uh, he, his, his grandparents uh, were born there, and they also moved out. And he ended up at Yale Law School, I think, with uh, a professor who may have been the one uh, writing uh, was the angry, uh, was the tiger mom who encouraged him to write this. And I don't really know much more about it, but uh, he's very young. Uh, he calls it a memoir, but he himself acknowledges how odd it is for a 31 uh, or two-year-old to write a memoir. But he certainly uh, saw an opportunity to reflect on what he thought were his own experiences in this kind of arc of hillbilly culture uh, to try to explain, you know, one of the important things that he thinks are going on, which has to do with the consequences of deindustrialization, how it's had um, a very adverse impact on uh, white working folk. You write in The Nation that Hillbilly Elegy, this massive bestseller, quote, has the feel of a college application essay, close quote. That's... I mean, he raises uh, an assortment of interesting questions, uh, recognizing that the kind of migrations that his family 
uh, underwent were common to a wide variety of Southerners, including African Americans. But he has no interest really in reflecting on them, and in fact prefers to use the story as something of a morality uh, tale. And trading in caricatures that we tend to associate with the very people he discusses. And so they seem, you know, with with the exception of his grandparents, to be pretty um, uh, sort of thinly crafted uh, people. And uh, the story, of course, is his uh, redemption from the, um, you know, sort of being grabbed from the jaws of disaster by his grandparents and his own good fortunes of managing to get out of the uh, morass he saw for the rest of his family and community because his his mother in particular was kind of caught in this um, this uh, situation. So I, I thought it was basically a pretty superficial rendering of what was going on and because it was a story of how he managed uh, to find his way out of it up against enormous odds. Well, he writes about the people he calls hillbillies who are violent yeah. and lazy and ignorant and sexist and angry at the political establishment and angry at Obama. What is his explanation of their Well, anger? the thing that's remarkable about it is that he he's very um, quick to dismiss race. Uh, and in, uh, instead, he sees Obama as an example of the uh, privilege that um, Democratic elites in particular uh, have and how this makes uh, the hillbilly folk, which he both identifies with and kind of reviles, you know, feel a sense of inferiority. Um, I, I was really, I mean, the the last section of the book is a kind of a reflection on contemporary politics and his ideas about, you know, where the Democratic Party went wrong and so on and so, so forth. And that's his take. His take is that uh, a lot of the anger comes from a feeling that um, they've been passed over and that the advantages have gone to people like Barack Obama, who, not so much because he's black, but because, or a beneficiary of affirmative action per se, but rather because of his elite pedigree, uh, seems to not only ha- have uh, offered him advantages, but uh, remind them of the advantages that they don't have. At the same time, of course, he's very quick to talk about their own laziness and ignorance, so it's not as though he's trying to build a case uh, for people who have, you know, tried to go down that route and have been blocked. For people who want to understand white working class anger, is there a better book than the monster bestseller by J.D. Vance? Well, one of the books that I reviewed is a comparative study of uh, Youngstown, Ohio, and East London, England, by a guy named Justin Guest. And, you know, I think it's the best of the books I had an opportunity to write about because he's really, I mean, it's not only a sort of a, a, a comparative study which helps us understand that we're looking at really a transatlantic phenomenon and certainly what's happened in 
uh, Europe over the past few years um, would confirm that. But he's also interested in recognizing that the whole construction of the idea of a white working class obscures uh, the way in which categories tend to submerge other really important divisions, as is true, so that in Youngstown, in its heyday uh, in the 60s and 70s, uh, when it's an overwhelmingly uh, white city and has a um, a fairly... a prosperous white working class, that the white working class itself, you know, has many divisions along ethnic um, and cultural lines that people who are regarded as white may be from the Middle East, they may be from Southern Europe. And so that these were issues that uh, working people in Youngstown, Ohio, and especially in the steel industry, which was uh, so formidable there, um, you know, struggled over themselves. So, you know, one of the things that is, I think should be clear is that this, you know, the white working class is not an analytical category, but a sort of cultural and political construction that is meant for us to kind of have to understand some of the important political divisions uh, that take place. But it doesn't offer us very much information as to who these people are, what they do, and why we even call them working class. What exactly does he mean by the title, the new minority, if he doesn't have a, a concept of a unitary white working class? What well, is what the... he does, what he tries to argue is that there's this, what he calls a sense of minoritization. And I, I uh-huh. think one of the, you know, the, the tensions in the book is between his recognition that the uh, so-called white working class is not uh, homogenous and the idea uh, more recently that white working people, people who had been uh, employed in um, steel mills or were the children of people who had been comfortably employed in steel mills have increasingly got a, a feeling because, not necessarily because of their numbers, but because of their lack of access to power, that they too have become a new minority. He does recognize too that that doesn't foreordain any specific politics and that he tries to suggest that there are two or three routes uh, people um, do politically who are regard themselves as in this situation, one of which is to express rage and, and contempt for the established politics, but it's not the only one. And what are the other routes beyond uh, or aside from, let's call it, Trumpism? Right. Well, what he suggests is that some of them withdraw from politics entirely, and others actually try to find their way within uh, established political institutions. So that the third is uh, what uh, the media tends to call, you know, sort of populist, which is doesn't have any program, which doesn't necessarily have any clear party connection, but is mostly governed by a sense of uh, betrayal and outrage and uh, feeling that the established political structures are no longer adequate to deal with their uh, problems, a sense of powerlessness. What about populism with a more progressive political content like Bernie Sanders? Does he consider this a significant uh, potential for the people he's writing about in Youngstown? 
Well, th- this book came out before the Sanders phenomenon, uh-huh. so he really doesn't take this on. And he doesn't, he is not uh, all that interested. I mean, he uses this minoritization as his, you know, main concept. Um, so it's not really built around. I mean, populist is, is something that he, uh, a label he uses to refer only in part of the book mm-hmm. uh, to this sort of um, sense of anger uh, and rage that. That he sees mostly anti-establishment, and you know, I, I don't think that any of the other works really offer much of a way of thinking about this. I mean, it strikes me that the media has played a pretty bad role in you know suggesting that this you know populism is a useful way to think about much of what is going on because it it it's kind of a stand-in for ignorant people who don't know what they're doing and yes. are just pissed off. Mm-hmm. You know, how we got from populism in the late 19th century, which was a political party, and people called themselves populists, and they did have a program, and, you know, they had you know, had their bad behavior as well as good behavior, but it was an attempt to readjust the balances of power in the industrializing United States, and how you get from that to a kind of small p populism that I think has been shaped by um, the tendency of uh, movements and phenomena we call populists to be more right-wing. Steve Hahn wrote for The Nation magazine about the rage of white folk, how the silent majority became a loud and angry minority. You can read him at thenation.com. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, John. It's really uh, nice to be on the show. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com. And you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. 